Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Everybody, welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 208. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, as always, joined by the one, the only, Dr. Kevin Falta. What's going on, Kevin? How are you? Oh, hanging in there by a thread. I did six talks this week's this week and traveled to Saskatoon and back. <laughs> oh, you betcha. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I, I love it up there. It was really nice. The students and everybody, everybody's so excited about uh, science communication and getting involved in the conversation. And I think it's so cool. It was it was a really, really nice meeting or set of meetings. That's good stuff, man. You've been a busy bee spread the good news of science, which you were doing uh, last week as well. So you've been is this like a is this a world tour? Is it Kevin Fulta world tour kind of going on right now? Um, I think it's kind of a, maybe a little bit of a revival of the way things used to be before I kind of got shut down by the by the man, <laughs> and uh, it, which is good because I'm I'm kind of heading into a little bit of a lull here where I think I won't be able to accept many in person uh, visits. Yeah, and, you know when when my critter lands. Yeah. So uh, I think that uh, it's a great to get these things rolling, and I was really thankful I was able to get the Saskatoon. That was the one I was supposed to do last year when we had a hurricane. Oh, I had to cancel. Yeah. So it was great to get up there and see some old friends, and a uh, great place to go to school. University of Saskatchewan, pretty cool. A lot of good people up there, and uh, if you're looking for an, a good ag school, go there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, with that out of the way, let's jump into our stories for the week, Kevin. So first up, Europe's precautionary hypocrisy, allowing untested bug-based food while banning safe GM crops and pesticides. Always loving what Europe's doing. Next up, The Guardian cites shocking statistics from environmental groups claiming increasing dangers from pesticides. Here's why they are wrong yet again. And finally, U.S. public health uh, officials scramble to restore trust in science and vaccines after two years of COVID controversies. Back to the COVID stuff yet again, Kevin. It's going to be very exciting. Okay, but first up, uh, let's talk about this, this Guardian story. This is actually an article that I wrote originally for the American Council on Science and Health. I think this was like last October or something. So GOP is... Uh, Reviving it is one of their greatest hits, I think. But but anyway, so last October, Friends of Earth Europe came out with what they called a pesticide atlas. I've, I haven't heard that term before. I don't know if that's a thing or not. But they claimed in this document that global pesticide use has increased by 80% since 1990. Um, total nonsense, as we'll explain in a minute. But then they started talking about pesticide poisonings, uh, killing something like 11,000 people and causing millions upon millions of cases of poisoning all around the world. And so the Guardian, as they typically do with these issues, hyped it up. They exaggerated it. They basically reprinted uh, what uh, Friends of Friends of the Earth told them to print in, in so many words. Um, and I just went through, and this is what I encourage everybody to do. I'm sure a lot of our, reader, our listeners already do this. But if you don't already, if you read a newspaper article, and they say, study says X 
you know, new report finds why, what have you, always click the link. And if they don't provide a link to it, try to Google it and find it. Because in, I want to say, and this is an unscientific calculation, I want to say like 78% of the time, they're not telling you what that resource says. It's it's really bad. The media, when it comes to science and health reporting, is just sloppy and uh, in some cases dishonest, if I'm, if I'm going to be blunt about it. But uh, I would always encourage that because there's just a lot of information they leave out that's very important for you uh, to be aware of. So I'll stop there, Kevin. I could rant for the next 30 minutes or so about this, but but what was your thoughts on this? As an agricultural scientist, you deal with this almost every day. So, Well, I, I really was glad to see this because for me, this is a confusing issue where different statistics are frequently conflated to tell the story that the person telling it wants to tell. And so one of the big thoughts on this particular article is when you talk about, well, the amount of pesticides has increased. Okay, well, what is a pesticide? It's a insecticides, fungicides, antimicrobials, herbicides, anything that you're killing something with or killing a pest, right, is a pesticide. And so while the things that we usually think of as having more acute toxicity in animals, like, um, uh, like insecticides, have actually gone down in use, you see other things like herbicides going up in use um, because there's more acres of control with a relatively low toxicity herbicide. So it's the idea of we dump, a, they'll say we dump a so many kilograms of, of, of pesticide. Well, a big part of that is a relatively innocuous compound. The other thing that they'll talk about and frequently skew is, well, um, you're using um, fungicides, you know, or there's fungicides around. Fungicides nowadays are, you can acutely target aspects of fungal metabolism that are not present in animals and plants or bacteria. And that's really cool because now you selectively can target fungi with a very potent inhibitor. And these are great because you put ounces on per acre. So when they talk about you know, increasing use, you're increasingly using things that are very innocuous and extremely targeted. So that's the other you know, really important element of this. The other way in which this is frequently misused is by talking about the uh, total number of kilograms, which really ties in with what I talked about before. Most of that is, is a relatively innocuous um, uh, compound that's being used as an herbicide, whereas the insecticides get better and better. Um, are lower and lower in terms of their amount. And the other important uh, number to think about is what they call environmental impact quotient, EQ, right, or EIQ. This is where you're using compounds which ultimately environmentally have less impact. So there are things that have fewer collateral effects beyond the target. So all of that stuff gets thrown out the window when organisms like friends of organisms organizations <laughs> like friends of the earth uh, freudian um where they where when they write their articles they they get can they go for maximum scare factor rather than clarification factor and then that gives us red meat to have to dissect here on science facts and fallacies yeah well i i don't know if you needed to correct yourself they are indeed earthworms these groups that we're talking about um, so there's a couple of things I want to add. That was all really important. Just, just to say, you know, adding together the amount of product that's applied in a given year, it doesn't tell you anything. It's kind of like saying, you know, use of prescription drugs. I don't know. 
quadrupled over the last three years or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, no dub because everyone was taking a vaccine, right? That doesn't tell you anything meaningful about public health or medicine or the risk that people face because you just have so many things mixed together. But um, I went and looked up pesticide use statistics from the Food and Agricultural Organization for the United Nations. And, and it's reason, they're reasonable estimates, but they track this pretty good. And what you can do is you can play with different variables. And I did that in the story just to show you how easy it is to reverse this article if you wanted to. So for example, if you measure pesticide use per $1,000 of agricultural production, uh, pesticide use has decreased since 1990. And if you do it per capita, it's essentially been flat. And that's interesting because the global population has, I, I don't know how much it's increased, but it has increased substantially. So that's an important variable. And then one other thing I'll say is when you're talking about pesticide poisonings, unfortunately, in most cases, you're talking about people who are attempting suicide or who are misusing uh, a chemical and they may, maybe they don't know they're doing it. Um, and that's tragic. It's usually preventable. Uh, but that doesn't have anything to do with the safety of, uh, you know, chronic exposure to very small amounts of pesticide in your food, or even for a pesticide applicator or a farmer, Kevin, again, you could speak to this better than I can, but there's, there's uh, safety procedures in place, depending on whatever the, the chemical is, whatever the active ingredient is, uh, that you can reduce these risks significantly. So, I, so it's sort of like, and the comparison I used was, it's kind of like quoting drunk driving statistics to discourage people from commuting to work on a Monday morning. You know, in one case, it's it's blatant abuse. In the other case, it's the safe use of an automobile. So I'll stop. What are your what other thoughts do you have on this? No, that pretty much sums it up real well. And and especially when you start talking about, and I know we get into questions of, you know, pesticides and organic use, that you have to really look at what is the impact of these things on an individual basis and how are they being um, applied and how are they being, what are precautions are being used. It, to just talk about uh, pesticides as a, overall group of compounds is really disingenuous. And I think I even talked about it, uh, I commented on an article today that 99% of the pesticides you consume come in from food because plants are protecting themselves with antimicrobials and antifungals and uh, anti-herbivory compounds. So there's a lot of things that, that are there that this, anytime you see the word per, um, pesticide being used in an inflammatory context, it's good to really, you know, tune your uh, resolution on that and see if you can figure out what they're really talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the buzzwords like industrial farming or factory farming terms like that. Okay. So let's move on. Let's talk about Europe. Uh, this is a strange continent, Kevin. Like the more we talk about Europe, the weirder it gets. Um, so tell us about this story dealing with uh, insects in our food supply. Well, and then the precautionary principle, right, which I thought would be, it, I was reading this and I started thinking it was principle spelled right or principle, because I always get that wrong. <laughs> but I was starting to think that the precautionary principle, principal would be like a kick-ass comic book character, like, uh, you know, the, the, the headmaster of the school that doesn't let anything happen, you know. <laughs> precautionary principle or like a superhero, the precautionary principle who would <laughs> zoom in and make you kneel on pencils because you uh, did something wrong. Anyway, this is an interesting article that was in European Scientist by Christine Chavon. And what she talks about is this hypocrisy that's there in the precautionary principle, which is this idea that we shouldn't do something if there's some potential perceived risk. And 
uh, those of us in science know that risk is involved in everything you do, whether you drive a car or walk down a flight of stairs. Everything has some finite amount of risk. In Europe and in the EU, they really lean on the precautionary principle as a uh, means to defeat good ideas. <laughs> and, and this is what's so funny, like genetic engineering has been essentially defeated by the precautionary principle, whereas uh, citizens and uh, activist organizations can lean on politicians to invoke this kind of get out of progress free card <laughs> where they can um, uh, shoot down a good idea like should we allow genetically engineered corn? You know, or new varieties of genetically engineered corn, or uh, gene editing. Right, this has been shown as in the in the European Court of uh, EU Court of Justice to be an unacceptable technology. Whereas mutagenesis is just fine. We talked about this before. Now here they apply a precautionary principle, or they don't apply it. They are willing to throw precaution to the wind if it's kind of a sexy, groovy topic that, um, you know, the, the, the unwashed barefoot baguette eaters will really love. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then the, here we go. So um, the idea of eating bugs. Now I can get behind this in some ways that, you know, insects are an excellent source of uh, some vitamins and minerals and amino acids and nutrients and all this good stuff, and that you can grow an awful lot of them on minimal resources. And so you can create a lot of calories in insects. And the idea of using insect insects as animal feed is really gaining traction, that to be able to feed chickens, well, they'll eat insects anyway. They'll eat a whole damn mouse. It's pretty wild to see that happen. Um, they're dinosaurs, you know, they don't care. Um, the idea of using insects as animal feed is really gaining traction and, and it's seeming to be more and more exciting, especially in milling it, milling things like crickets and, uh, whatever else into flowers and into products that can be processed into animal food for, uh, uh, uh hogs and, and beef, that kind of thing as a supplement. And it seems like that's getting a little bit of traction. Uh, the main ones are things like cockroaches, um, locusts are a real popular one, crickets, um, mealworms. It's got meal right in the name, right? Um, so taking these things and getting them built up to speed um, so that they're able to be grown and processed with minimal resource input is a really sexy idea. Um, there's even a startup company that has identified what are the amino acid deficiencies in insects and then correcting them using genetic engineering. Now, that'll be forbidden. That gets yeah. the butterfly <laughs> label, ironically. <laughs> Don't eat the butterfly larvae because it's... So, um, essentially, though, the EU is excited to look the other way on this. And it doesn't seem that they're too excited to regulate this in any particular way. Yet, let alone, it's a much more haphazard discipline than a very carefully studied, constructed, and well-regulated genetically engineered seed. In fact, they're looking now to import... Um, products from a company called Cricket One, <laughs> a Vietnamese company that's making crickets in the flower. And the idea here is that, that they you can mill this into your baguette <laughs> and, uh, and enjoy that. And the problem is there's lots of um, potential downsides to eating insects that are potential risks and maybe small, but certainly more risky than genetically engineered crops. Yet EU officials are excited to look the other way. 
Yeah, it's it's strange, Kevin. It's it's um it's one of these buzzwords, I think, like edible insects, it's like organic or regenerative or these other terms we talk about. It just seems that even though they're demonstrably worse for the planet and worse for you, maybe that's not quite true with insect farming, but in terms of worse for the planet, but there's some clear downsides, as you were saying, and it just seems that these are just totally irrelevant. And I want to go to uh, a 2019 study. This is in PLOS One, European scientists cited this. So I wanted, I wanted to go look it up because I don't want to be reactionary in the sense of going bugs those are gross you know like bugs are bad so i really wanted to see what some of the literature said so this is a this is a review of some of the studies that have been done on insect farming and they write that our research indicates the important role of these insects in the epidemiology of parasites pathogenic to vertebrates and then they go on to say it suggests that edible insects may be the most important parasite vector for domestic insectivorous animals. And then they go on to say, future research really needs to nail down and figure out how to do this safely if we're gonna do it. So again, to go back to the precautionary aspect of this, it's just so strange to me that Europe would either look at this research or totally ignore it and go, oh, this is good. <laughs> Let's move forward with this, right? <laughs> it seems like, and maybe this isn't precaution, it's just sensible regulatory policy to say, you know, we're going to make sure before we upend our entire food chain, food supply chain, uh, that we're going to figure out that we can do this safely, right? Am I crazy on that, Kevin? No, I think you're exactly right. And, and But, you know, my, my comeback to that is the same thing I would be saying to somebody who uh, would say we shouldn't have genetically edited, gene edited crops is, well, let's do it, but let's be very careful. I mean, let, let's find facilities where we can raise insects in ways that won't have these fungal infections. Because that's just one of the big problems. Bringing in pathogenic, pathogenic fungi and other issues on insects is one part of it. The other issue is potential allergies, right? I mean, we know that, um, that uh, you produce novel proteins in insects. People have even insects to, or um, allergies to dust mite feces, which is not an insect, it's an arachnid, but it, nonetheless, there are, we know that there are things that are produced in insects that are immunogenic with humans. Uh, the other big important one is chitin. So C-H-I-T-I-N. Chitin is the typical component, the major structural component of the exoskeleton of insects. And chitin can induce a lot of interesting responses in plants, but also has been shown to potentially be pro-inflammatory in animals, um, also in, in you know mammals, by the way, um, but also potentially carcinogenic. And I would say there is as much, there's greater evidence for participation of chitin in immune response and, and eventually potentially cancer as uh, more than glyphosate. <laughs> I would almost guarantee it. And then the other, because I always, that's kind of become my yardstick lately for things people want to do is, how does this compare to something everybody hates? Yeah. And um, and so the other part about this is that crickets are naturally high in cyanide at about five milligrams per kilogram, which isn't very much. It's a pretty low amount. But, but if you said you had one five micrograms per kilogram, uh, you know, that would be unheard of if it was a farm chemical. So it's again the hypocrisy of picking and choosing the sexy and cute uh, aspects of sustainability versus ignoring the things that are truly sustainable and even vilifying those things. And this is why we got to keep working on it. 
and why I'm going to start the non-cricket project. <laughs> it's going to have a, a butterfly on the, it's going to be the same label, but with an X through the butterfly. Right. Or like a cricket with a smile on his face, you know. Yeah. Do not eat me. Yeah. Yeah. They'll do the Chick-fil-A thing where they'll have a dancing cricket as their, their mascot, you know, like a, a Chick-fil-A is a cow, I think, right? Like eat more chicken. Anyways. That's right. Um, well, the, the other aspect of this too, that's important is that when they talk about replacing plant flour with cricket flour, um, animals have different amino acid composition than plants. And one of the reasons that we have to eat lots of plants is to get those amino acids that we don't synthesize. And so, you know, go back to the whole idea of different aromatic amino acids and other a couple others that we need to get from plants uh, that we don't, that if we're eating insects, we're going to have to still get those amino acids from somewhere. So it doesn't leave the plants off the hook. Yeah, very good point. What, one other thing I want to say, just in passing, before we move on to our last story, and European scientists covers it. They point out that one of the arguments for, you know, adding this stuff to the food supply is, well, they do it in Asia and Africa, so it's not that big of a thing. It's just, it's the ick factor, right? It's this cultural bias that you have against eating insects, and you just need to get over that. Um, and they point out that, you know, it, it, and they're they're based in France, but they say, you know, Europe has an established food culture where there's certain things that are acceptable and there's certain ways of doing things. And it's OK for us to have that. And you can't just force this on us because, you know, you can get over your your disgust of insects. And it's kind of amusing because the same people who will say, well, you need to just eat insects are the same people that will tell you you can't send your BT cowpea over to Nigeria because that's a colonialist violation of their traditional indigenous knowledge. And how dare you try to subvert their culture, right? So it's the same sort of hypocrisy. And I just wanted to point that out in passing. It just amuses me that these people will say, listen, we want to utterly change everything you eat because it's good for the planet. So how dare you, you know, just do what we tell you. Always drives me nuts. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> I think uh, I think one of us got in trouble on Twitter for for making fun of her, but uh, I'm gonna keep doing it. It's fun. Okay, uh, final story, Kevin. Tell us about uh, tell us about what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. So U.S. public health officials scrambled to resolve trust in science and vaccines over two years of COVID controversies, and this is by Lauren Strasser and uh, appearing in the GLP. And really what this talks about is it focuses on what's happening in the stories in Oklahoma where they're seeing big changes in vaccination hesitancy. And what's ended up happening because of COVID and a breakdown in trust in nationally in government organizations, a national organization, I guess you would say state organizations too, is that certain segments of the population are less excited about following public health guidance. And this has been reflected not just in the discussion of COVID vaccination, but also when you look across the board at other types of vaccination that occur, whether it's measles, uh, flu, um, influenza is notably lower in many areas of the country. I think it's uh, several percentage points, at least in Oklahoma and among certain demographics like pregnant women, where there's presumed to be more risk to the woman and fetus, uh, it's uh, 20% or something lower than it is, than it, you know, which, which is insane because they're the ones who are most vulnerable to the illness. So the big problem is what's going on with public health messaging. 
And I think the article misses it a little bit because a lot of what we're seeing in, in what the article discusses is using the wrong wording, talking about mRNA technology, well, it's a bivalent vaccine, what are monoclonal antibodies, and not speaking in terms in which the public can really comprehend. And that was really the uh, one of the main points of the article about just the miscommunication. I think, in my opinion, what I see is um, public communication coming from folks in charge with way too much certainty and thinking that certainty is going to reassure the public when really the problem is, yes, certainty does have, speaking from certainty has some degree of giving confidence, but nothing takes away confidence faster than when your certainty goes to uncertainty. Right. And when certain little blobs of uh, doubt come about, now all of a sudden, I thought you said this was safe. And so this is really, uh, you know, communication in these areas going forward is going to be much more dependent upon tailoring messages so that they're landing better with the public to begin with. And uh, that's at least a, a really good start into um, what this article is about. They really ended up finishing up talking more about the role of misinformation. Yeah, all very good points. Um, I also don't think this article is on the mark. I think they, they missed it by uh, much further than you're, than you're saying. <laughs> they missed it by a lot of it. Um, but before I say anything critical, they did point out one thing, uh, the example of a pharmacist in Oklahoma City who pulled aside one of her patients who expressed some concern about the COVID shots. And she just said, no, 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 here's how the technology works. Here's how they developed it so quickly. Here's why we recommend it. And I, it presumably was a short conversation and, and, and they asked the lady that like that, that quelled my concern right there because she just took a few minutes and instead of mocking me as, you know, a, you know, a covert racist anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist, she just explained to me what was concerning me. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can just get this, you know? So um, before I go on my rant, what are your thoughts on that interaction? It sounds like that, 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 that reminded me of a Kevin Fulta conversation or at least what you describe as the interactions you have. No, that, that's exactly it. And, and we've known for a long time that to create these kinds of changes, you don't change someone's mind. You can give someone a popcorn trail to change their own mind. And by being kind and engaging on a one-on-one -on -one basis, these kinds of micro-conversions are entirely possible. And that's where we try to solve these problems by painting with a broad brush, and it's very difficult. But by finding people individually, we can actually create these, this change. And not to go on a tangent, but that's why I encourage people all the time to engage in social media. Because here it is one-on-one. -on -one. And it's a little bit impersonal, and especially when you're trying to t turn the tide on, um, you know, Monsatan666. <laughs> Chances are they're not going to change their tune. But if you're kind and reach out to them, the people who are watching Monsatan666, and you <laughs> have this conversation, and they call you a shill. And but when you come back with, well, let's take a look at why this is important for the developing world, it does tend to get people to think about it twice. So good engagement at the personal level can't under can't overestimate the importance of that. I I think that doesn't get as much attention because it's really difficult. And it's hard to do at scale. You know, you can't multiply that interaction overnight by 250 million people. It just, it doesn't work that way. So there's some things in the story that just seem kind of silly and condescending to me. You already mentioned the fact that, you know, well, people don't understand what mRNA is. So you got to dumb it down. So it's like, no, you don't. 
And in fact, there was a study by MIT in 2021, in the spring of 2021. And one of the points they made is that COVID skeptics, as they called them, are very good at dissecting epidemiological data. They're very good at turning this research and this uh, state public health data against the officials that produce it because they're smart people. So I think that is really off base to say, well, we're just going to simplify the message. And I think that's just going to irritate people who, who are probably similar to me in a lot of ways. You know, I have no problem with vaccines. I don't think the virus is fake or anything, but there are a lot of people that I probably share a lot of values with who think that stuff. And I'm, I'm confident that they would look at that and go, oh, so you think I'm too dumb to understand what a new vaccine is. I, I dislike you even more. So I think that's a problem. They also said that they're they're doing targeted social media ads at football fans and Star Wars fans. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and maybe it's maybe it's because we do this partially for a living, Kevin, and I and I I get a master class in hearing you talk about what works and what doesn't work. And so I hear them talk about like, oh, our public health departments just need more money so they can do Star Wars ads. It's like, no, that's not gonna work. Um, again, I'll stop jumping here before I keep ranting. <laughs> no, I think you're pretty much on the money there. Now, I think most of this was was um, a discussion of things that people are reacting to and not reacting to in the messaging, and that was another big part of this whole article. That when they said uh, the word, they said the word vaccine or vaccinate is a turnoff. And I don't know, man. People used to line up for a polio one so that because polio was the big turnoff. (laughs) (laughs) You know, vaccines were the savior. And how that got flipped is really hard to say. But they said that when you change the messaging to choose today to be vaccinated, not to be vaccinated, just said choose today, and then maybe had some sort of, you know, coronavirus or whatever. The idea was is that you were emphasizing choice, which is what people found offensive was being told to do it. Right. And so they, they, they aren't opposed to being told to make a decision because they still feel the autonomy of making the decision. And that's kind of an important way maybe to think about communicating to the vaccine hesitant. Yeah. Is, you know, this is an important choice that you can make to help people yeah. and then go to the appeal to values. That's that's a really uh, and that's the one thing that I that really liked about this article is that it at least made me think about that strategy. It's kind of a good way to, to do that. I agree with that. The thing that I find a little challenging about it is that we, we, for a while at least, we had a federal vaccine mandate for a lot of people and the Supreme Court struck it down. But I can see a lot of people looking at this choose today campaign and going, well, if I don't choose today, then I get fired tomorrow. Right. And then I don't have an income. And that was a problem for a lot of people, you know. So that's the other complaint I have about the article is there's a lot there. It's a kind of a tone deafness, no disrespect intended, but it is, it's tone deaf. There's, there's no reflection on like, did we put a policy in place that may have alienated people? Did we say anything and then contradict ourselves four times? Like there's no, there's no, there's no analysis. And again, I have to say this, I'm sorry. I keep, I've brought this article up. This is from NPR June 1st, 2020. And before I quote this story, recall what the world looked like. Everybody is locked down. You can't go to work. You can't go to school. You can't go to church. You can't even go to your mother's funeral because this virus is so deadly and it's going to wipe you out. And again, at that time, I understood that message. But NPR says, and they're quoting an open letter by a bunch of public health officials who are saying it's okay to go out and protest in support of Black Lives Matter at this at this very moment. So they write, 
The risks of congregating during a global pandemic shouldn't keep people from protesting racism, according to dozens of public health and disease experts who signed an open letter in support of the protests in June 2020. And then the letter itself says white supremacy is a lethal public health issue that predates and contributes to COVID-19. Local governments should not break up crowded demonstrations under the guise of maintaining public health. So listen, I'm not here to argue about politics or to argue about that issue. But I mean, really, like like at the start of a pandemic, you've told everyone under pain of penalty in some cases, don't leave your homes unless you want to go do this one thing that we find politically acceptable. I, I don't know what to say, Kevin. Like if you can't look at a message like that and understand how destructive that is of public trust, I can't help you. I, like that can't continue. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm done. No, no, I'm done. No, no. Sorry. But, but I'll, I'll add on to that. Um, when uh, Jim Jordan, who I'm no big fan of, was <laughs> grilling Fauci that day. And he said, you know, Dr. Fauci, how is it, uh, should people be allowed to congregate around these protests? And he would, he said, yes, they should. When he's the same guy who's telling people that they shouldn't be getting together with other people and shouldn't be, you know, it, it, and this kind of stuff was so damaging to the messaging around COVID because that was the wrong message. The right message would have been, no, any congregation around people increases the spread, uh, the probability of spread. It's all probabilities. And if you choose not to wear a mask, you increase your probability. If you choose to gather inside with other people who are yelling and screaming, you're raising the probability. If you're outside and you're in a large group, especially a vocal group, you're raising the probability. So the best thing right now at a time of public, find other ways to get your important protest message across that do not involve gathering with people. You know, let's be innovative and come up with new strategies to reach more people through the web. You know, there's other ways that they could have flipped that. Right. And and I, I think that that really eroded trust in 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 um, Fauci and the CDC. Yeah. So um, I, I, nothing else to say, I suppose. I, I've just noticed because I've read multiple articles like this and they always come down to there's misinformation everywhere. There's so much. It's like, yeah, that's true. We understand that, you know, RFK is all over Twitter and Mike Adams knows how to manipulate uh, newsletters to attract people to his websites. I get that. And that's a problem. That's one of the reasons this podcast exists. But there's just no ability to analyze things that were done wrong. So that's that's. I guess that's the takeaway. It's like, address everything, please, because it's so obvious, you know. Sure. Well, but this is this is where I want to make my mark in the next couple of years is how do we revise our strategic communication and not make these mis missteps and that when a crisis hits, how does crisis communication at the government level have to respond in ways that are a little bit more um, precautionary with respect to uh, certainty? Because nothing breaks trust faster than a certain statement that ends up being not as certain. And so how do we how do we hone our language that way? It's not by dumbing it down. It's actually by smart smartening it up on the side of the messenger rather than dumbing it down for the recipient. Make the messenger a little bit sharper and saying what they say and what they mean. And, and you got to have public, you know, whoever is running the show, the next, you know, Fauci or whatever is going to happen. <clears throat> excuse me. It's not you have to have somebody who's 
it doesn't matter how many scientific credentials they have. You need to have somebody who knows not to put their foot in their mouth because that's the problem here. It isn't a lack of science. It's a lack of public trust. And so that's where the next leading officials need to come by, come from. Very well said. Very well said. This is why you do a podcast with a uh, science communication expert. Why you do the podcast with science communication experts. Yeah. We've talked about having a, a third co-host on one of these upcoming uh, episodes. Yeah. No, I just, I, I just slip into it here and there. <laughs> no, very good. This is, it's, it's actually, it's actually really, really good that we brought up this last topic because I think it's so important and really emphasize and underscores actually all of our articles today really underscore why it's so necessary for everybody to be involved in the conversation and do so in a way that works. I'll stop there. I'll stop there. Good stuff, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we'll be back next week with episode 209. 2023 is already flying by, man. We're already uh, so we're already quite a while into it. I'll just say that much. But <laughs> so already, what February 31st? <laughs> yeah, yeah, February 32nd tomorrow, man. Yeah, I um, refuse to tear the calendar page off. I'm just gonna keep going. It feels better. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys can follow us on social media as well at Kevin Foltz on Twitter at ACSH Org for my writing. Find it all there. Uh, follow Genetic Literacy Project because they put this whole show on for us. They're at Genetic Literacy on Twitter. Thank you so much. See you next time.